that I snuck into the deal because this isn't something that I, I put together. Um, it isn't something that I took down myself. It's something that um, came about from one maintaining relationships from these events that I went to. Um, obviously presenting myself as someone who was trustworthy and provided value um, and timing, right? Like I, I happen to have the money that that I needed to get into that deal, but also the skill set, also the relationships. Have you ever asked yourself what can go wrong when investing in apartments? What challenges do investors face when dealing with such a large asset class? Well, on the No BS Apartment Investing Podcast, we place expert professionals on the hot seat, ask them the tough questions that may be running through your mind, all while removing the fluff that comes with apartment investing. We aim to put your mind at ease while showing you that investing in apartments is the way to financial freedom. And now for your host, Mark Caesar. Welcome back, everyone, to another, to another episode of the No BS Apartment Investing Podcast. And on this episode, we are talking to Mr. Tim Little, who is a multifamily investor. He is also our, in the military. I believe he is full-time in it. And on today's insight, Tim will share something very interesting, how to sneak your way into your next deal. And how to make it work so yeah you'll you'll learn how he handled you know his situation with acquiring his first deal in the multifamily space and how he's become a better investor for it tim welcome to the show sir all right thanks mark good to be here yeah i appreciate you jumping being here so let's jump right into it can you uh share tell us a little bit a little bit more about tim little who who are you and what it is that you do Sure. So I'm a husband, a father of two girls, ages three and six. I'm a lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserves. So it's not full time. It's actually part time, which creates its, its own challenges that we can talk about from a, you know, uh, a time time management perspective. Um, and then hopefully, but not least, uh, I am the founder and CEO of Zana Investments. It's a real estate investment company. That seeks to help busy professionals uh, passively invest in real estate. Very nice. Now you mentioned that you are a lieutenant colonel in the in the Army Reserves. How mm-hmm. do you balance that act? You know, from W two to running Zana Investment on uh, investment investments. How 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 does that work for you? So, so that's that's the trick, right? Um, I was on active duty orders for like the almost the past four years, um, and then for my uh, professional development on the military side, I actually had to come off active duty orders so that I could take a command within the reserves. Now, command is only you know part time, one week in a month, about two weeks a year. Um, but uh, when I was coming off of that, you know, I could have just as easily gone back to a W-2 job, right? Um, although I've been out of the market, you know, for four or five years, I, given my background, I, I think I would have been able to find a job, but it's, it's not something I wanted to do. Uh, um, and so I, I was really intent on trying to use that opportunity, those two years in command, to build the foundation of my real estate business. So I'm actually doing this full time right now. 
And, and obviously I'm blessed in the sense that, you know, my wife has a good job and, you know, so she's able to, to cover down on a lot, but not, not just that, you know, you, you have to planning uh, uh, kicks in here. Right. So I knew that I, I was going to be doing this. So I didn't just wait till the last minute. What I did is, you know, I socked away enough money um, that I could continue to pay the mortgage for that entire two years that I would be trying to get the business off the ground. So, you know, certainly a lot of planning that goes into this. This wasn't one of those burn the bridges, you know, and we'll make it somehow in real estate kind of things. This was well thought out. Having those those conversations, you know, with my wife to say, hey, because, you know, the, the two years before that, she was in grad school. So I was like, hey, don't worry about work because she had just gotten laid off from her job of like 10 years. You know, and this is exactly why we we talk about building wealth in real estate. Right. So that we can reduce that risk because, you know, when you have a W-2, your job is not up to you. It's up to someone else. Um, and we saw that firsthand when she lost her job. And with with very little warning, luckily, they, they gave her a, a severance package, you know, a couple months. Um, but we used that opportunity for her for her to get her MBA. And I said, don't worry about it. I'll hold things down. You know, I was still on my active duty orders. And all I asked for in return was that, um, you know, when that two years was up and it was my turn that I could go ahead and take that time that I needed to to build up this business. So that's where we find ourselves at right now. Wow, that is amazing. Now, you we know that you started in real estate, but can we get into a little granular water real estate? You had, I mean, there are so many different choices out there to to build wealth, but what's why did you decide, hey, real estate is the course of action for, for my family and I? Yeah, and so like my interest in real estate uh, first got peaked back in the day. I'm, I'm talking like 2005 when like a lot of people, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I was like, you know, I'm going to break out of the matrix and, you know, be a, a millionaire based off real estate. And like a lot of things, it, the timing wasn't right. Um, you know, this was as the, the housing market was, you know, blowing up and, and about to explode. Um, and so I went out, I bought a, a fancy course on CDs um, on, you know, how to buy single family homes and all this but then I wound up getting deployed for 15 months to Iraq. And then right after that, I got out of active duty and went to grad school. You know, so there's another three years. I was a broke student, so didn't even think about real estate for, the, for that period. Um, and it wasn't until I got you know, settled in Washington, D.C. with a, you know, a stable job that I started thinking about real estate again and, and reread Rich Dad, Poor Dad and then just started diving in on, on anything that I could find. And it just made so much sense to me from the perspective of, you know, how tax advantaged it is, um, how you could really scale. And, and at that time, I wasn't thinking about apartments or anything like that. You know, I, I was thinking, hey, you know, single family homes. Uh, but then I, the more I read, the more I, I realized that even owning single family homes, it, it one, it, it has a limit to, to how, how quickly and, and how much you can scale. But also for me, again, I'm always trying to do things that may seem risky to others, but at the same time, I'm trying to mitigate those risks. And so I, that's why I decided to go straight into small multifamily. Um, may, may not seem like much of a difference, but I'll tell you that, that 
if you have a, uh, a single family house and you have zero renters, you have zero dollars coming in. But if you have a duplex and one side is rented and the other isn't, you at least still have some money coming in. And so that can make all the difference in the world between you being able to pay that mortgage and not being able to pay that mortgage. Yeah. So that, that was my thought process there and how I really got started into to real estate. Nice. Yeah, I like that because um, I, I do share it often that, you know, people are comfortable with single families because it's, it's you know, it, it, it has risks, but it's like the go to for a lot of people. And I'm always curious as to why people don't, you know, come outside of that matrix and think a little bigger. You know, why not go for the small multifamily like you did? Why not go for the for the big multifamily? Because there's more opportunities to scale. So I, I love down the reasoning, the explanation that you give, you know, with a single family, it's not rented, zero dollars with a duplex. One's rented, one's not. At least you have something, you know, that's producing income. And that's the name of the game, having cash flow. Now, you acquired your duplex. You know, you're back from at you're back from the military. You acquired your duplex. You had the heart to heart with the wife. And you, I'm, I'm sure you put a game plan together. OK, what was going through your mind when you decided to, OK, I'm, I'm going to invest myself for two years and get this business off the ground. I'm going to start Sana. I'm going to take it off the ground. What was going through your head and what was the, what was the game plan? Yeah. And so of course there's, there's a whole lot in between just in terms of the, uh, the, the stepping stones that I did on the way up to that point. So summarizing really quick, but bought a duplex in Richmond, Virginia, $85,000. Because couldn't afford anything in DC, right? Like everyone knows DC is expensive, just like New York. Yeah. Um, you know, so I had to look elsewhere. And so uh bought in Richmond, you know, not the the greatest place in the world, uh, you know, in terms of like the house, it was like a hundred years old. Um, but still it was what I could afford. Um, and the rents were good. Um, but then uh, you know, move on moving on a couple of years. I was like, okay, um, you know, once I moved to Florida, which is where I am now, I'm in Tampa, Florida, I wanted uh, my property to, to be closer to me. So, uh, you know, like four years after buying that duplex, I went ahead and did a 1031 exchange uh, in order to buy something here in St. Petersburg. And so what I bought in St. Petersburg, Florida, was I bought a triplex. You know, so I, I introduced two techniques right there. I did the 1031 exchange so that I could defer the taxes and rolled that money directly into buying a newer but larger property here in St. Petersburg. Um, and so that was one of those things where I wanted to test it out to see if it works because you read about stuff all the time, but you never you never know yeah. if it works as advertised. Um, the 1031 was actually uh, pretty pretty painless, um, and I made out great on the property itself. Like I said, I bought it for eighty five thousand, and within four years, I sold it for one hundred and fifty cash, like literally sight unseen. And I was like, this guy is going to buy this property that's like a hundred years old without even doing an inspection. Um, needless to say, I didn't I didn't argue him out of it, um, but. Uh, went ahead and got a triplex here in St. Petersburg. And so again, that's mitigating my risk even further, right? Now I have three rents coming in 
on this one building and overall mortgage was like 1700 and the rents respectively were like 850 1250 and 1300 so you do the math uh in addition to any appreciation that i was hoping for i was still doing all right on the rents um so i wasn't too worried about it at the same time i started to get introduced to big multifamily after going to a conference and i was like oh i didn't i didn't even know this was a thing um because if you're not introduced um, you know, to that environment, you don't know that it's there. Um, and so I went to, I think it was like a, a Brad Sumrock event in Texas. And at that point, I wasn't ready to like, you know, buy into programs and stuff like that. Um, but I still wanted to continue learning. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Like, people can buy these giant apartment buildings, they can't do it by themselves. But they get a team together, they can go ahead and, and take these down, you know, using other people's money. And I was like, that seems uh, to make a lot more sense to me because you start to do the math on even small multifamily. And it's like, hey, yeah, $200 per unit, um, you know, in cash flow, how many units do I need to own in order to make this much per month? And I'm like, man, 50, 50 units, like. I got a long way to go. You know, you, you start doing that math and it's, it, it's not demoralizing, but you're like, this, this isn't the right tool for this job is I guess what it comes down to. Um, and so that's when I really got interested in apartments and started learning as much as I could, but because I wasn't willing to buy into any like mentorship program or anything like that, um, I still wanted to, to get in. Uh, so what I did is I passively invested for the first time. Um, and I did that right before I went on another deployment uh, to Iraq in, in 2017. So what that did is I knew I wouldn't have time to, you know, do active investing, you know, while I was over there. You know, you're working seven days a week most of the time. But I was like, I can give them my money see if this whole passive investing thing works while at the same time being able to ask all the questions I want because I'm investing my money with them so that it yeah. gives me that right. Um, and so what I tell people, and I recommend this to anyone who's considering, you know, passively investing or active investing is, you know, learn while you earn, right? There, there's no harm in paying money to hopefully get a nice return while still being able to ask all the questions you want. And that provided me with the, the proof of concept, like, like, hey, once I got my first distribution, I was like, Whew, all right, I'm not going to be on the, you know, the next episode of American Greed or something. Um, and, and I only invested, I say only 25,000. But for me, that was a lot of money, right? That was the most amount of, of capital that I had like kind of saved up, um, you know, and, and so once I saw that that was real, I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do this active. Um, and so once I got back, that's when I really started going to conferences, meeting up with people, uh, educating myself, um, learning how to underwrite, doing all these things um, in order to make myself smart on the topic. Awesome. So what are certain things that you learned, um, Pat, investing as, an, as a limited partner with, uh, you know, the group that you invested with before deployment? 
I guess I would say the the biggest thing I learned is what questions to ask. You know, when I when I started, I was I was pretty intimidated by the concept. Um, so of course I was I felt intimidated talking to these sponsors, and that's it's it's a really strange dynamic because now it's the opposite way for me, right? When I'm talking to uh, potential investors. You know, I'm still intimidated when I when I talk to people them investing their money with me. But then I think back and I was like, you know what? Like, I was intimidated when I was that investor because I, I wasn't confident. I didn't feel like I I knew what I was talking about. Um, and so I was asking questions that I thought would make me sound smart, but didn't really have the same bearing on the investment returns. You know, asking questions about cap rate. And this and that, because I, I thought that's that's what people ask. And, you know, but then as I learned these terms better and I learned learned to understand them, I was like, oh, yeah, that was that's a pretty stupid question. Um, but now that I'm more confident, it's just funny that I find myself on the opposite side of the coin talking to investors now um, and being nervous talking to them, because now the onus is on me. Right. Like now I'm the one who is the, the expert. Um, so, you know, I always try to be mindful whenever talking to investors, potential investors, aspiring investors, it's all about education. Um, you know, I don't, I don't assume that, that people know anything and I'm always willing to answer any questions that they have, uh, provide them material that, that might help make them smarter on the topic. Because the last thing I want is anyone, be it with me or anyone else, investing their money without you're truly understanding what they're investing into. Well said, I like that. So you kicked off your multifamily career as on the LP side, and I'm pretty sure you wanted to pivot into a more active role on your return back to the state side. Um, what led to that decision and how, you know, how are you doing right now? Are you still, LPing or are you still, you know, are you actively uh, buying and doing the acquisition side of multifamily at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, I'll say both. Um, I continue to be a, a passive investor um, for a couple of different reasons. One, because, um, you know, that first LP investment, uh, that first passive investment that I did, um, my money's still in it. It's, it's about to go full cycle here and next month, actually in February, um, they've already, they've already closed. So I'll be, be getting all my funds back, which is great because then I'll be able to invest in something else. But I also have a solo 401k and, you know, part of that is that you can't invest in your own deals because the IRS is like, Hey, that's a little self-interested, you know, you might get benefit from that now. So, um, you know, I have to invest it with others and, and I'm okay with that. So, uh, again, just an, another avenue for, for people who are looking into passively investing. It doesn't just have to be a big pile of money that you have, you know, sitting in your bank account. Uh, you can have your, your individual retirement account. If it's set up correctly, you can invest in uh, passively in real estate as well. Um, and so in terms of the GP side, what I did, like, Again, I went to uh, a conference, got super hyped up, just like everyone coming out of there. We're like, let's do this. You know, we're gonna we're gonna take down some apartment buildings. Um, and you know, then the realization hit me that I don't have any investors. Um, so 
what I did is I, I maintained that network of people that I met there, you know, people that I thought I could work with that seemed like good folks. Um, and some of them came to me and said, Hey, Tim, uh, we remember you from the conference. Seemed like a good dude. Um, you know, would you like to passively invest in this deal that we're putting together in Tampa? And I was like, oh, man, that, that's great, right? Tampa is my backyard. That's ideal, you know, because you want to be able to see it, touch it, walk the property, all that stuff. Yeah. I was like, I was, I was still on the high from the conference. So I was like, nah, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to my capital right now, you know, because I had some money uh, socked away. Uh, and I was like, you know, I really want to use this for when I do my own deal. Um, I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to do that deal again without other partners <laughs> or investors, but, but still. Um, and so, you know, a few months goes by and then they come back again. They're like, Hey, Tim, if you, if you still got that money, um, then we might be able to give you a, a slice of the GP in this deal in, in Tampa. You know, obviously you'd have to do other work too. Um, but you know, we know your background, you, you can bring something to the table. And I was like, okay. Uh, you know, it was one of those win-win situations where they were coming up, you know, close to the deadline for when they needed to, to have their funds set. And I was looking to get you know, as a GP in a deal, even, even if it's a super, super small slice, that wasn't, that wasn't really relevant to me because it wasn't about how much I was going to make. It was really about one, getting the experience of being, being in the deal, you know, sitting in on all the meetings, walking the grounds, uh, you know, doing the legwork. And then also being able to say that I was a general partner on a, you know, 59 unit portfolio in Tampa, Florida, uh, because that it brings legitimacy, which, you know, is, is huge when you're trying to build your own brand and you're trying to get legitimacy among passive investors other active investors, you know, lenders, brokers, et cetera. I mean, it, it goes so far. So that's why I say that I snuck into the deal because this isn't something that I, I put together. Um, it isn't something that I took down myself. It's something that um, came about from one, maintaining relationships from these events that I went to. Um, obviously, presenting myself as someone who was trustworthy and provided value. Um, and timing, right? Like I, I happen to have the money that that I needed to get into that deal, but also the skill set, also the relationships, um, and was able to to get in there without necessarily raising money myself. Um, and and so after sneaking into that deal, that was kind of the catalyst for for moving on. But I'll go ahead and stop there in case you have any any questions about that. No, that, that is very interesting because um, I, I like the concept of how you worded it, sneaking into the deal, because, again, um, we all want to get a deal done. And there, especially if you're, you know, right off the bat, you're brand new or you're aspiring and obstacles will come about. But again, as you alluded to, you need to find ways you can add value. And in your case, your value was you were already in Tampa. So your boots on the ground, you had the capital, you know, even though you rejected them the first time, but then they remembered. And of course, the main thing is you, you nurtured that relationship. You pretty much kept in touch. You followed up. 
And a lot of people don't do these things. So it's definitely crucial to, you know, once once you make a connection, follow up, continue to follow up and see how you can add value. And eventually that value will turn into an opportunity where you can, quote unquote, sneak your way into a deal. So that is awesome for you to share. Now you're you're into your first YouTube, then your first GP deal, both as an LP and a GP. Now, I believe what what what, what proceeded after that? Have you done your own deal on your own or did you end up, you know, getting into another deal with another, with the same group or, or another group? Yeah. And so after that, I don't want to say it was like a low, but what I really focused on was building the, the business side of my business, you know, making my website more professional, um, trying to, you know, create a, a brand on Facebook, LinkedIn, um, so that people know who I was because, because that's, that's really the thing, right? No one can invest with you if they don't know you and, and they don't understand what you're providing. So that's what I focused on for a while. Um, but again, still maintaining, um, my relationship with some of those folks that I did that deal with. And then one of them is who I actually wound up partnering with later on the most recent GP deal that I did, which is a 136 unit apartment in Tallahassee, Florida. So this one is a little unique in that it's uh, it was student housing, but what we're going to do is a conversion into market housing. So um, when we got it, there was, there was actually no tenants. Um, and what they were doing is just like, Hey, once all the, the students were out, let's go in and just update everything, you know, in, in one file swoop. Uh, exteriors, interiors. That way, it's kind of it's kind of done already. Um, get the pain out of the way, and it's a lot easier to do right when there's no one in the in the apartment. Right. Um, and so that provides its own its own challenges and its own drawbacks, right? Uh, again, no no tenants means no income. No right, uh, yeah. Right. So then you you know you have to sell that to investors to say, hey, I understand. You know, it's not ideal that you won't be getting distributions till nine, 12 months. But um, what we can tell you is that the returns will will be worth it in the long run. So that'll work for some investors, not for investors. It, and that's why it always comes down to knowing what the, the, the needs and wants of your investors are. Are they more concerned uh, about the long-term aspect or are they more concerned about those distributions every month or, or quarterly. Um, and what was really exciting about this deal for me was one that I got to go back to Tallahassee, my old stomping grounds, because um, I actually went to uh, Florida State for undergrad. Um, but two, this was my first deal ever trying to raise capital. And I still wasn't very confident just in the fact that I didn't have like a a large Rolodex of people. And um, what made it more complicated was the fact that it was a 506C, which means that only accredited investors were allowed to invest in this deal. And uh, again, that's a double-edged sword, right? So what a 506C means is you can advertise. So I could I could really get to flex my, my marketing muscles, um, you know, putting videos together, putting ads together, putting them on Facebook, LinkedIn. And so that's a plus because it raises your profile and allows people to, to see what you're doing. Um, and definitely, 
you know, learn a lot more about the deal. The downside, only accredited investors can invest in your deal because you're you're advertising it. So that makes the pool of potential investors a lot smaller. Um, but this is another thing I'll say for, you know, those aspiring active investors. You never really know, um, like that those folks in your social circle, some of them may surprise you <laughs> with how much money they have. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I know that was the, the case for me because it's like, you know, someone I had worked with in the past in the in the reserves, um, you know, since I had only worked with him on the reserve side, I didn't really think about what he does on the civilian side. And come to find out he's a CEO of his own company and, and has a pretty significant net worth. And, you know, he already knew me and trusted me. He just needed to talk to me to understand that I was, you know, competent and had a good deal in this instance. And once he saw that, he was like, okay. Um, and that's how I got my, my first investor. And granted, I, I got one, but, but like, I, I'm not gonna lie to you. That was my goal. Um, you know, we had a group of about five, five people. And our goal was to, um, hit, uh, I think it was like 750 minimum raise, um, because that's what we needed in order to, um, get assets under management. But, we really were trying to get a million and we were able to, to hit that mostly because one of my partners is, is more experienced on the race side, but I, I wanted to provide value and I didn't want to let my team down. So for me, that meant getting at least one investor um, to the table. And, and that's what I did. So that's what was most exciting to me. It wasn't necessarily getting the deal, although it's a beautiful deal for me, it was really getting that, that first passive investor to trust me enough uh, to put their money into that deal that I was um, overseeing. Wow, that that is truly a, a a story of winning from you know from a duplex to fifty nine units now to one hundred thirty six. That that is ten x and all across the board, man. Congratulations on that for sure. Now, Ken is is there anything within your real estate investing career, be it past or present that you endured that was unforeseen um that you did not expect in any way and if so like what went wrong how did it affect your business and what did you learn from that situation sure um no i gotta tell you it's all been rainbows and butterflies uh no <laughs> i'm i'm just messing with you no there there have definitely been uh trials and tribulations i i guess one of the the stories that's like Funny, not funny. Um, you know, in the triplex, um, yeah, I, I, I would say made the mistake of self-managing, um, and that's because it was so close. I was like, oh, how hard can it be? You know, and I've, had, you know, had some pretty bad experience with property managers in the past, and I was like, why should I give them ten percent? Uh, you know, because it, it takes a big chunk out of it um, once you start paying those fees. Uh, and so I was self-managing. And so I, I was the one having to deal with all those issues on a regular basis. And this was while I was still working, you know, um, full time. And it's just, it, so um, we got a call that like, hey, you know, one of, one of my tenants hadn't paid. And it was like a week late. And he was like always on time. Uh, and it was our, our largest unit, uh, three bedroom unit. 
So big, big chunk of, of the rents. And I was like, that's weird. You know, he's usually pretty good about, about paying. So I, I, you know, sent an email to him, all, all this, tried to call him, nothing. Um, so a week or two goes by and I was just happened to be talking to, to one of the other tenants and he's like, he's probably in jail. And he, he said it as like a joke. And I was like, eh, wait, he, he might be like, I never thought of that as a possibility, but I was like, you know, I should probably look into that because I know here in Florida, like it's, it's pretty easy to look up people um, that get arrested. We're one of those states that like puts the mugshots everywhere. So, you know, if you're really bored, you can go to the mugshot page and just look at all the people and what they've done. And um, so I was like, let me check this out. So I started doing a search, looked in the county that the, the house is in and I didn't see him and I was kind of relieved. Right. Um, but then I was like, oh, I might as well check, you know, Hillsborough County too. Cause it's right next door. And I was like, man, there he is. Right. And so you never know what it's for. It could be something really small and maybe he'll be out and this won't be an issue. Um, but then I read the, uh, the citation and he had like, 13 charges against him he got pulled over and the like the the top you know uh charge on there was um possession of marijuana 25 pounds or more and i was like wow that um that is that is a little bit more than personal use so um yeah he is he is probably going to be away for a while <laughs> um and that just that that starts off this whole thing of what do I do now? Right. Like, OK, but I, I just found out my tenants in jail and that's just wasn't in any of the, you know, rental real estate books that I had read, like what you do then. And so that's where I'll say this was beneficial in that it, it was a catalyst for me learning something new, like how do I deal with this problem? And so you just start diving into research, legal websites, um, forums, bigger pockets all those resources that you have at your disposal. Um, and what I was able to learn was it might be illegal if I touch his stuff and, and pull it out without his permission, you know, unless I can prove that he has voluntarily said that I can do that. I certainly don't want to get sued. I don't want to go to jail. I know how often it happens. Um, so I was like, I'm going to do everything by the book. Uh, and so what I did is I, I set up an appointment to talk to him in jail uh, through their video conferencing system. And I was just like, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you this note that says that you are voluntarily ending your lease. Um, that way you can get your stuff out of there or have someone get your stuff out of there because I don't want to do it, certainly. Um, I was like, are you cool with that? And he's like, yeah, I appreciate it. You know, because what I told him is if you voluntarily, you know, break your lease, I won't I won't go after you for past due rent and, you know, file an eviction because I don't want to have to do that either. Um, and so I basically drew up a, a pseudo legal document with his signature um, agreeing that, you know, he was he was voluntarily ending the lease and that I was agreeing to that um, and then arranged for 
his girlfriend to come and, and pick up all his belongings. So in terms of, you know, a bad situation, uh, how it ended, it certainly could have been worse because uh, they did move all their stuff out. Uh, they cleaned up a little bit, uh, but, you know, it, I've definitely had it a lot worse where people just left all their stuff in there and it was in really bad condition. And I think this was the best case for, for both people, you know, considering the situation. Um, but I learned a lot legally in terms of, you know, rights of a landlord to touch the belongings of a tenant, all that stuff. And then the biggest lesson I learned is, you know, when you're inheriting tenants, because this was a tenant that I didn't put in there, it was one that was already there. Um, it's good to ask questions, right? And and check on the leases, because this was one of, of three guys that was living in that three-bedroom apartment, and only one of them, him, was on the lease itself. And that's that's something that I would never do. Um, what we do, what we do is uh, we put everyone on the lease that's in that in that room, right, or in that right. um, unit, because that way, again, mitigating risks. If one person, you know, isn't there, you could always go to the other person, at least get half the rent, uh, you know. Uh, so. It was it was pretty weird that they would have three individuals, all very young, and only put one person on the lease. I'm not sure what they were thinking, what they did when they did that, but that was uh, that was certainly a lesson learned. Um, and then even with like this, uh, the Tallahassee deal, uh, that was not without its sleepless nights as well, um, because the goal was to get it closed before. New Year's, right? Because we wanted to pass those uh, tax benefits on to our investors. And it was originally supposed to close in November. Some stuff happened. Okay, it was delayed until December. And then the lender, you know, kept saying, oh, we're just, we're just so inundated with, you know, last minute closings, everyone trying to get it in at the end of the year. So we're just gonna have to delay it by about a week. And we're like, okay, um, you know, because it's not just up to us. The seller obviously, you know, has a say in whether these things get delayed or not. And so the the seller wasn't happy. And then um, it got delayed again. And the seller is like, okay, this time I want $100,000. And like, all right, because you're so far into the deal, you don't really have an option at that point. Do you let you know, a $20 million deal fall apart because over a hundred thousand dollars. Um, no. Um, but we certainly understand the seller side, you know, he, he wants, he wants assurance that it's going to get closed. Um, and so, you know, we paid a hundred thousand dollars, which is basically just free chicken to him. And then, you know, now we're at like December 13th and then it gets delayed again it gets delayed again. And this time the seller is like, no, no, I'm done. I'm out. And we're like, ah, you know, so now it's around like Christmas time, <laughs> right? When you, you don't need this kind of stress, right? <laughs> Everyone's trying to spend time with their families. And there's a bunch of, bunch of us partners, you know, just trying to figure out what is going on. <laughs> like we need to tell our investors to, um, it was, it was terrible. Um, and so they're like, okay, 
I guess they talked the guy off the ledge to like, listen, and he knew the lender too. So he knew it wasn't our fault because he was dealing with them on uh, a, a, like a, a purchase as well. And he was having similar issues. So he wasn't blaming us, but that didn't help us a whole lot. Um, but we, we talked him back from the ledge and he was like, okay. And so we finally closed on like December 30th. And I was just like, cause that, that was it. Like that was the last, that was the last hurrah. Like if it didn't close, then it just, the whole deal was just going to fall apart. And like I said, for me, this being my first deal where I was raising capital, I really, really, really didn't want to have to go back to my first investor and say, Hey, sorry, this whole deal just fell apart. So I guess I'll just, um, you know, give you your money back, but, but definitely, um, you know, invest with me next time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Like, like how did that look? And I was like, and, and the other part was, was really the feeling of, of helplessness, you know, when you don't have control over a situation and, you know, we had prime sponsors who were the ones who were doing most of the negotiations um, at that level. And for our part, there was there was nothing really we could do about it, but but wait to hear, you know, what the results were, what happened. And so that's, you know, what we did for like the week of Christmas and after Christmas. It's like, where are we at now? What's going on? Um, and it was just a really terrible situation to, to be in, you know, like a day before uh, you know, New Year's Eve, not knowing whether you're going to close that deal, whether it's all going to fall apart completely, whether it's going to close, but after New Year's and then potentially get those benefits that you'd already promised your investors. Luckily, it, it all worked out at the very last minute, but it's one of those things where you're like, I am never using that lender again. <laughs> I don't care how good they are or they think they are like, they have burned that bridge with me personally. And I think some of the other partners feel the same way. So that is, that is crazy. And um, you guys aren't the first story that I'm hearing about lenders, you know, having issues towards the end of the year. It's, it's been an ongoing cycle with a few lenders, but yeah, it's definitely good. And I've learned this early on in my career, which is to have multiple lenders in your Rolodex you know, in the event that one doesn't work out, you have, you know, two, three or four to go to, 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 you know, to, to get a term sheet from, because again, it, you just never know what's going to happen at the 11th hour. That's when all hell really breaks loose. And if you can't pivot, then, you know, you're pretty much screwed, but you know, luckily for you guys, you guys were able to get the deal through the table. Investors are happy. So definitely congratulations to you and your team on, on that amazing feat. What is your biggest surprise you found in your success? What happened that you did not expect? I guess in, in terms of uh, what I've been surprised in, in the industry in general is just how willing, um, you know, people are to help each other. It, you know, I, I, I come from, you know, I have an MBA, so I'm, you know, working in the business background, especially being in a place like DC, there's this very like competitive uh, feel to everything. Everyone feels like they're competing with each other for the best jobs, for the most money, et cetera. And yeah, I expected that going into real estate as well. But what I found is, is the opposite. It's very collaborative. Everyone's always trying to help others out. And, you know, they, 
they say basically that um, the the more value you add to other people, that that's going to come back to you. And, and I know it sounds cliche, but it's it's something that I found really to be true. And it's it's true just for very basic reasons. If if you help someone else out, they're more willing to help you out, and you just never know when you're going to need their help, right? Like okay. it, it may. Be, it may be on something a year from now. It may be next week. Um, but I find that everyone tries to, to help everyone out. It's not about, you know, oh, they're going to seal my investors. I mean, because when it comes right down to it, we're in different circles. Um, yeah. You know, we, we run with different people. We appeal to different people. So different groups of people know and trust us. Um, will there be some overlap in that, that Venn Vin diagram in some places? Sure. But you know, like your audience is just not the same as my audience and that, and that's okay. That's what means we can, we can both be successful, um, separately. It's, it's not a, uh, an all or nothing kind of thing. Yeah. I, I love it. And I agree because again, um, uh, something that I recently learned as well from a book that I was reading, uh, the author pretty much pointed that uh, a lot of the top earners out there, they are always willing to to help. People just have to ask. And a lot of us who are looking towards these top earners, we feel intimidated. We don't ask. And that's where that competitive nature kicks in, where it's like, all right, it's a dog. It becomes a dog eat dog sort of world. But if you only ask someone who's in a position that you're aspiring to be for help, they're more than willing to give you the, the clues, the tips, even if you have to pay for it at some point, you know, it's yeah. worth it because they, they want to pass that knowledge forward and help you get up there. But you have to simply ask. So I like the fact that you, you, you know, pointed out that, in the multifamily space, it is a team game. It is a team sport. And there are always people willing to help, even though our circles are different. Yeah, man. And I think it, it's, it took me a little while to kind of recognize that. And once I recognized it, then I was like, okay, I need to start practicing that myself. Like, because it, it's hard to get over that mental block of, you know, trying to, to hold the stuff for yourself. Um, yeah. when you realize you can always do more together than you can by yourself. Um, and it's not a zero sum game, right? The size of that pie is, is infinite. Definitely. You know, it's that, and once I, once I changed my mindset on that, I think it, I don't know, it became one more enjoyable, but two, it made me feel better. Cause I didn't feel like I was competing. I felt like I was, I was, you know, driving my own path. Um, but, but still growing. Indeed, I agree. Now, I know that uh, you're in the military and, you know, you have a military background and I know that time saving and time hacks are are the golden goose for you guys. But what is the best time saving hack that you found that helps you in your day to day, whether it's whether it's family, personal or business? Yeah, and that's that's the thing, because. Because I'm in the, I've been in the military for like 25 years. You think I'd be so much better at this, um, but I, I tell you, it's a lot easier when people are telling you what to do and where to be. So, um, but seriously, uh, I've I've been trying to improve as much as I can because I mean, like a lot of folks, I, I can get easily distracted, and I think distraction 
um, is like the the enemy of productivity. Uh, so I'll just give a few examples. Like Hootsuite is something that I use to schedule social media. Uh, it just makes it easier for me. One, because um, I can go back to it and see when I posted, what I posted. Uh, but I could also like batch things, like have them go to three different social media platforms at the time that I choose. And I could do it, you know, a week ahead of time if I want to. Um, and so that makes it easier to, to do some of the other stuff that I talk about later. Uh, one of them is uh, ClickUp. That's another tool that I've been trying to use more. And that helps me to track like tasks and subtasks that I need to knock out and lets me visually see all the things. So it's basically like a fancy to-do list, um, but being able to see it and you know see what needs to get done to have an overall task done, stuff like that. It helps me organize my thoughts and my productivity. Um, I guess as a general hack though, that's absolutely free. Um, time blocking has helped me a lot, right? Um, committing time for activities and locking those into my calendar so that I don't get distracted and hop from one thing to another. Um, so that, that's what I would say is, is the biggest thing. If you're gonna start anywhere, just start committing time um, to those things that you know you need to do. You know, Set an hour on your calendar to deal with social media, set an hour on your calendar to create a, a you know, to underwrite deals, what, whatever that is for you, because um, if you commit that time and you're like, hey, I am not going anywhere for an hour. This is where I'm going to be. And this is exactly what I'm going to be doing. You don't get distracted and start watching a YouTube video or answering email yeah. or checking. You know, you, you have to find that that time to commit to those things that, you know, need to get done. And at least for me, that's that's been very helpful because, again, I can get easily distracted. So, yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah, I'm I'm big. Uh advocate for time blocking. I've uh, put that in place towards the latter end of last year into now, and it is a time saver for sure. And, you know, just, uh, just to be, as you said, just to be able to visualize and say, okay, I have an hour, half an hour for this, an hour for this, and not get distracted and just tune off everything else and focus on those set uh, time schedule. It is, it is a lifesaver. <laughs> Now, we're, as we're coming into end Tim, like what tips would you have for people who are considering real estate or who are aspiring to become investors themselves? Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, my, my three tips are, are probably nothing original and probably nothing that you haven't heard on your show already. But sometimes the, the fundamentals are, are fundamentals for a reason. Um, so the first one, educate yourself, right? I think that should be the first step for anyone. I'm not... I'm not that type who's like, you know, ready, fire, aim, like, you know, just do it. Um, I, I think you should educate yourself first. Um, there's so much free information out there from books to YouTube to podcasts like this one. Um, and there are also just super affordable courses out there, too, like on sites like Udemy, where you can learn to, to underwrite or, or learn what you should be looking for when you're evaluating a market for real estate and stuff like that, you know, buying these courses for $9, $20. Um, I think a lot of people just don't take advantage of, of some of that stuff that's out there. Um, number two, I would say surround yourself with people who are where you want to be, you know, who are doing what you aspire to be doing. 
Um, and and that's and that that can make a huge difference, not just from learning from those individuals, uh, but also from the perspective of expanding your mindset in terms of what you think is possible. Um, you know, I may have goals that are down here, but once I start associating with folks who are working at this level, then I I both realize and figure out how it's possible to be where they're at. Whereas before, I may not have even considered that a possibility. Um, and then I'd say the, the third one is be willing to take risks. Um, but as has been a theme throughout this, this talk, uh, learn how to mitigate those risks to the lowest possible level. So it's, it's two part, right? You have to take action, but you don't have to take action recklessly, you know, look at it, figure out how you can bring that, that risk down. You know, I talked about buying a, a duplex. Great. Go buy a duplex, but first, know the market, know the comps, know the median income, you know, do your homework um, before you just dive in. Cause you know, the other problem is some people just get so excited. They want to take massive action because that's what they're told to do. Um, but they, they do it too quickly without doing their homework first because they let emotions drive what they're doing instead of, you know, thinking through it. So don't just buy the first thing you could afford because you're so hyped about getting in. Um, but at the end of the day, you, you still do have to take action. So don't, don't swing the other way either where you get caught in analysis paralysis and you just sit there, learn, 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 and don't do anything because that's the difference between someone who's interested in real estate and someone who's a real estate investor. The real estate investor has actually done something. They have, they have taken action and they have implemented all that stuff that they've learned. Awesome, Tubbs. Now, what is up next for you, your team, and Zana Investments? Sure. So um, for me, uh, I continue to be pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, what I like to do is I try to, to read articles that you know a lot of people don't have time to read and, and break it down into what I think are the key takeaways. That's one of the ways that I, I try to provide value because um, I know how busy people are. Uh, I, I'm no different, but I actually enjoy reading that stuff. Um, and I enjoy sharing that. So I'll be uh, continuing to do that. I also try to want to try to um, you know, build up my, my video presence. I think video is a very engaging medium. So I want to start putting more videos on LinkedIn and uh, maybe on YouTube, really breaking down uh, investing real estate into bite-sized chunks, right? You know, hey, here's a, a video on net operating income. Here, here's one on a 1031 exchange. Five-minute snippets that, that people could watch and learn the very basics so that um, they can educate themselves and, and get confident enough to, to start doing this. Um, in the meantime, you know, um, people can reach out to me either on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm also on, on Facebook as on uh, investments um, and, and they could always go to zonainvestments.com. But, you know, for your listeners, I got a free gift for them. They can go to uh, zonainvestments.com backslash cheat sheet. Um, and they can get the uh, passive investors cheat sheet that I did up that really explains in plain language, all the terms that they need to know to confidently start passively investing in multifamily real estate. Awesome, man. We appreciate that. And so the listen, of course, all the links and Tim's contact info will definitely be in the show notes for you guys. 
So we have come to an end, Tim. I want to thank you so much for sharing your awesome story again on how to sneak into your first deal and also sharing some very crucial information about, you know, when it comes to investing on the small side and in the and and in the multifamily space, things to look out for that is very imperative. And also, I want to, you know, thank you for just being transparent and vulnerable and just opening up your 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 word to us. And of course, the platform is always open to have you whenever you have you want to come back and share another story. We're always willing to to you know to hear your 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 feedback and your education. Awesome. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. And with that said, guys, uh, happy investing into your success. And don't forget to please subscribe so you never miss out on any brand new episodes. And if you love the content that's being provided, the free knowledge being shared, give us uh, give us some love by dropping a five-star rating and a written review as it helps all other real estate lovers find us. And please share this with your friends and let them know how to subscribe as well. To all your success, until next time. Thank you for tuning in. And I hope you've gotten massive value from this episode. But before you leave, subscribe, download, and leave us your five-star review as we want to continue pumping you with massive value and content on the No BS Apartment Investing Podcast. Until next time.